Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Who was Bobby Kennedy? The image that immediately comes up is of a liberal lion fighting to end poverty. He was a committed humanitarian dedicated to civil rights and a strong opponent of the Vietnam War. Less well known about Bobby Kennedy are his beginnings as a ruthless cold warrior, an aide to witch hunter Joe McCarthy, who as Attorney General, Bobby Kennedy approved the wiretapping of Martin Luther King's telephone. He was also the most dedicated Catholic of the brothers Kennedy, hatchet man for his brother John's campaign for Senate and president, Did Bobby Kennedy go through some dramatic change, or was it all consistent with who he was all along? Our guest today I'm very pleased to have with us is Larry Tai. Larry, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Nice to be back with you. Larry Tai is a New York Times bestselling author whose brand new book is a biography of Robert F. Kennedy, the former attorney general, U.S. senator, and presidential candidate. It's called Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. It explores Kennedy's extraordinary transformation from cold warrior to fiery leftist. Other books he wrote, and I love this one, Rising from the Rails, explored how the black men who worked on George Pullman's railroad sleeping cars helped kickstart the civil rights movement and gave birth to today's African-American middle class. He also wrote Satchel, the biography of two American icons, Satchel Paige and Jim Crow. Another book, Superman, tells the nearly real-life story of the most enduring American hero of the past century. And then there's Shock, a collaboration with Kitty Dukakis, a journalist's first-person account of electroconvulsive therapy, Uh, And in addition to his writing, Larry Tai runs the Boston-based Health Coverage Fellowship, which helps the media do a better job reporting on critical issues like public health, mental health, and high-tech medicine. Launched in 2001 and supported by a series of foundations, the fellowship trains a dozen medical journalists a year from newspapers, radio stations, and TV outlets uh, nationwide. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Larry Tide. There have been other books written about Bobby Kennedy. How did this book come to be? Tell us, please, about your personal interest in the Kennedys. So I had an interest in two different ways. One is, growing up in Massachusetts, you were infused with things Kennedy. That's true. Um, and I was especially infused because I went to high school with one of Bobby's children and one of his um, sister's children. But what really drew me to him was 
I had the sense all along that he was somehow the most interesting and yet the least understood and least celebrated of the Kennedy brothers. I also was intrigued as a lifelong journalist as to why this guy could make some of the journalists that I considered my mentors, some of the hardest-edged journalists of their generation, like David Halberstam, uh-huh. fall in love with him, actually leave journalism or write books that were Valentine's to him, and generally how he could woo political reporters who are trained to be cynics and not to trust politicians. And so exploring my personal interest in the Kennedys and my interest as a journalist and how this guy could woo my profession just drew me to him in a way that um, I wasn't going to take no for an, an- for an answer in terms of publishers. I guess not, and he certainly uh, didn't take no from a lot of people who knew Bobby Kennedy, many of whom have since passed away, but you got to have uh, interviews with them, people who are extremely reticent to talk about it. And since Bobby Kennedy's assassination nearly 50 years ago, Bobby's widow, Ethel, has been very reticent to talk about her husband, Bobby. Why did she agree to talk with you, and, and, and what did she tell you that sheds unique light on who he was. So, Bert, I'd love to tell you that it's because I'm charming and charismatic and I just wooed her. (laughs) And the truth is that I think she was sensing her own mortality. Uh, She turned 88 this year and that she had a notion that it was me or nobody. uh And she didn't want to think that she was never going to tell these stories. And so she was willing to sit down like nearly 400 others were uh, to talk about what they remembered about Bobby. There was not also nobody alive today to circle the wagons the way the Kennedys had always uh, done to keep uh-huh. their people from talking to reporters. No. So it was really, it was wonderful, and we can talk a little bit, if you'd like, about what people like Ethel told me. Well, yeah, I'd like to. What What did she tell you that, that shed new light on, on who he was that only she would know, and now through your book other people can know? So we had two long sessions and the several hours each, and it was less, she, she's not a loquacious person, but she's an incredibly honest person, and she let me run by her every theory I had on Bobby. Uh, there has been a Kennedy myth-making machine that says, for instance, that it was an aberration or an asterisk, his relationship with Joe McCarthy, the table-thumping, red-baiting, U.S. Senator from Wisconsin, uh, and that the seven and a half months that Bobby worked for him didn't really matter. And the truth is, it mattered substantially. And it wasn't just that he worked for McCarthy and looked at him as a mentor. It was that Bobby himself was very much of a cold warrior in that era, and as importantly, that he considered McCarthy a friend as well as a boss. And Ethel said, look, much of America may think of Joe McCarthy as a monster, But to us, he was the guy who played with our daughter and who had us to dinner, and he was a friend. And on issue after issue like that, trying to understand the relationship between Bobby and Jack Kennedy, Ethel helped me understand that it wasn't just that they would finish one another's sentences, but that they were so simpatico that they didn't even have to really talk out loud, that they just understood by body language and by the history that they had with one another how one another would respond to certain circumstances. It was things like that that sort of combined the political and the personal that Ethel 
let me, would, would tell me when I was wrong, would tell me when I was right, and just gave me a sense that I was validating with the one person who knew him best what Bobby Kennedy was really like. And I, I do want to talk about his his period with uh, Joe McCarthy. And I, you know, people who just knew him when he, you know, kind of exploded on the scene in, in 1968 running for president after he had been uh, elected from New York State, which is an interesting story. Uh, he was with uh, with uh, Joe McCarthy. And I, I want to go into that a little bit. Bobby was, you, you point out that Bobby's, quote, Catholicism was in, integral to his politics more than his brothers. And I wonder if if that, uh, his Catholicism, led to his work with Joe McCarthy uh, in the early 50s. W- what about that uh, strong sense of Catholicism? How did that influence who he was consistently through his life? So that was a huge piece of Bobby's definition of who he was. He was clearly, of Joe and Rose's children, the one who came closest to becoming a priest and the one who took his faith most to heart. So there's no question that part of the way he related to Joe McCarthy is that McCarthy was a believing Catholic and was a tough Irishman like Bobby Kennedy Uh was. As important, Joe McCarthy was a great buddy of Joe Kennedy's. Whenever he would Uh come through Palm Beach, he'd stop by for a drink, he'd stop by to flirt with Joe's daughters, and anybody who was a friend of Joe Kennedy's was a friend of Bobby Kennedy's. And so... He, in, in terms of just generally where they came from, that was one reason that he was drawn to him. And the other reason, as we talked about a minute ago, is that Bobby Kennedy thought that the one politician in Washington who was standing up to the communists rather than just talking about it and really trying to root them out of places like the State Department was Joe McCarthy. And it wasn't until decades, a decade later that uh, Bobby Kennedy really understood not just what McCarthy was trying to do with communism, but the people he was trampling on in the way he was doing that. Uh-huh. And certainly, uh, you know, the, the uh, Catholic uh, uh, hierarchy has long been some of the fiercest opponents of communism, going back to the uh, Spanish Civil War. Uh, and I, I wonder about, well, why did uh, Bobby Kennedy eventually quit working for McCarthy. Was there a, a, a difference that they had over some of the tactics? Or, I mean, he remained, I assume, fairly strong anti-communist, yes? He remained a strong anti-communist. He blamed anything in terms of tactical errors by McCarthy and his overzealousness. Bobby, instead of blaming Joe McCarthy for that, blamed Roy Cohn, who was another easy guy to hate. Yeah. And yet, that was also overlooking the fact it was McCarthy who was Cohn's boss, not the other way around. And Cohn was young, he was arrogant, he was irresponsible, and he was very much under the control of Joe McCarthy. And McCarthy could have shut him off any time. So Bobby left not because he saw the, uh, the wrongs uh-huh. of McCarthy. He left because Roy Cohn was a boss he hated. Uh, Bobby thought he ought to be the senior guy in the office. And I think that if Roy Cohn hadn't been there, Bobby might have stayed a whole lot longer with McCarthy and in fairness to Bobby, uh, McCarthy might not have been uh, as subject to excess because when Bobby Kennedy, the one set of hearings that McCarthy ran that got accolades from the Democrats on the subcommittee, from the press, and from the public were a set of hearings that Bobby had orchestrated 
looking at the way during the Korean War that our allies were not just shipping products for our enemies that we were fighting in Korea, they were actually shipping troops. And Bobby said, what are we doing here? We're supporting these allies, we're giving them funds for things, and they're turning around and doing things that could harm our soldiers who are fighting in Korea. <laughs> so Bobby Kennedy um, uplifted McCarthy in some ways, he ignored McCarthy's excesses, and he stayed working for him for seven and a half months. Interesting, as you were describing our American aid going eventually against us. Well, that goes on a lot now. I mean, people have called for arming the Syrian so-called moderates, and of course those weapons will go pretty much straight to ISIS. And of course the, the anti-communist thing led to Vietnam, which you know we'll get to eventually here in talking about Bobby Kennedy. But I mean, that started out framing a Vietnamese nationalist movement in terms of us versus them, freedom versus communism. And, uh, wow, it must have been big for Bobby to uh, to come to that place. Well, let's talk about that right now. What the heck? I mean, his his whole anti-communist approach, I mean, the Vietnamese nationalists were labeled as, as communists. And, of course, uh, China, well, China, who had been the, you know, fierce enemy of Vietnam, uh, never really got close to him, but the Soviet Union then helped them. How did, how could Bobby Kennedy, given his experience with the Cuban Missile Crisis and being, you know, a, a dyed-in-the-wool anti-communist, it must have been exceedingly difficult for him to, to come out uh, against uh, Johnson's war in Vietnam. Um, it was even more difficult than that because it was, as Bobby Kennedy acknowledged, it was only partly Lyndon Johnson's war. It was also right. the Kennedy's war. And it was Bobby Kennedy who was one of the strongest advocates for counterinsurgency. It was Bobby Kennedy who went to Vietnam and said, we can win this thing and we ought to stay here and fight to win. And it was Bobby Kennedy who had the courage years later to stand up in the U.S. Senate and say not just the country was wrong and Lyndon Johnson is wrong, he said quite explicitly, I was wrong. And it was wow. that kind of honesty in his later mm. stages mm -hmm. that gave him credibility. It was also, in my mind, I tried to judge the early Bobby Kennedy by the standard that the late Bobby Kennedy would have held himself and did hold himself to. How rare for a politician to be able to say, I was wrong. And that, uh, that authenticity, that uh, ability to reflect and, and say, I was wrong, no doubt helped his his charm. I mean, let's face it, he did develop uh, some charm. But he didn't start out that way. As you mentioned, he, he was, there were uh, nine children. He and Ethel had 11 children. He was the runt of the litter. How did that affect who he became? It defined just about everything for Bobby Kennedy, not just in his years at home as a boy, but in his later years. It made him intent to prove himself to the rest of his family, and particularly to his dad. It made him work harder and fight harder than anybody in the family. He was the one. It was easy for the older kids because they were the benighted ones. Yeah. Joe Kennedy, um, right. who said that his son Joe Jr. would become the president, and when Joe Jr. died, Jack stepped into that role. Ted, as the youngest, got treated with the special deference that parents show yeah. to their youngest. Yes. Bobby Kennedy was sort of lost in the middle there, and he was, he was lost with a lot of the Kennedy girls. His grandmother worried that he might become girlish, 
And so Bobby Kennedy had to be fiercer and felt that he had to be fiercer to get attention than anybody else. And that fierceness defined him in his early years. But we're all, I think, some combination of toughness and tenderness. Yes. And the needle with Bobby Kennedy started mm. out very much on the tough side. Hmm. Interesting. Proving he was tough. And certainly, uh, it's it appeared to me that, that Macho was a big part of at least John Kennedy's uh, uh, persona, you know, having to look tough. He, he, he ran against uh, uh, Richard Nixon, of course, and it was, it seemed, my recollection is that, uh, you know, they had to be tough on communism. Neither one could be weak on communism. So looking tough, looking strong, being macho. Uh, but in terms of women, we all know, you know everybody knows about uh, uh, John Kennedy's uh, uh, approaches to women, his, uh, you know, enjoyment of women, shall we say. Please tell us about some of the differences about that Bobby and Jack had in approaches to women, and, and in what ways this might have been symbolic of the difference between Jack and uh, the uh, focus of the book here, Bobby Kennedy. Yes, yeah, so what we know for sure is that Joe Kennedy had extramarital affairs that Jack Kennedy had extramarital affairs, and that Bobby Kennedy was the most puritanical and sanctimonious of the Kennedy kids. Um, whether or not he was ever unfaithful to Ethel, I'm not about to say for sure. There were all kinds of rumors one way or the other, yes. but I think that we know that there was a special um, relationship between Bobby and Ethel that I think exceeded the standards that Joe had set for the kids and the standards that most of us could ever begin to meet. And I think that the... Um, uh, so I like to say, if they were both in the church, Jack and Bobby, one of the distinctions in terms of their personalities and the way they approached the world was that Jack Kennedy would have been the Pope and that Bobby Kennedy would have been a parish priest. That Jack always sort of was, again, the son who seemed to have things come easily to him. He wow. was smart, he was intellectual, he was eloquent. Um, Bobby never had things come as easily, but it also meant that, that he was the one who got down into the grassroots and really learned from experience in a way that I think his brother never did. And in the end, I think Bobby was more passionate, he was more provocative, and he would have been, if he had lived long enough, and I think if he lived, he would have been president, he would have been a very different kind of president than his brother Jack was. Well, I, I think so, and, and what an incredible, incredible shame, of course, that was. And we will talk about that as we go on. Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today, very pleased to have with us uh, really good author, Larry Ty, and his brand-new book is Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. So much to talk about there. And the relationship with Jack and Bobby how, how many years were there between them, and in what ways were they similar? In what way we've gone over some of the ways that they they were different. How close were they? Right. So they were in the in their early years. They were not close. Bobby looked up to Jack. Bobby wanted Jack to befriend him, and Jack had no use for his little brother, for his sanctimonious brother, for his brother who wouldn't. Um, raid the liquor cabinet and would tell on Jack when he did. Would just yeah. This was a kid who was a pain in the neck to him, and he was a pain in the neck until the two of them went overseas together on a trip to Asia. Jack, uh, Joe Kennedy had said, Jack, you will take your younger brother Bobby on this trip, and it was a trip that 
that ended up being a fact-finding trip for Jack as he was planning to um, his rise in Congress and the and during that trip Jack got deathly ill and it was Bobby Kennedy who brought him to Japan who got him treatment and who stayed by his bedside and who I think saved his life it was one of two times or maybe three times in his life that Jack was given last rites Mm. and Mm. during that trip finally Jack saw that Bobby was a real person unto himself he was somebody who Jack could rely on for things, and from the rest of their life, uh, from that point on, that Bobby was the closest thing that Jack had to an alter ego, somebody who was his hmm. buddy, who had his back, who was his lieutenant. They had a relationship that brothers generally dream of having but seldom really achieve. Wow. Huh. Yeah, I can... Uh Tell from experience on that, but not quite the same there. And they were so in the uh, public spotlight their entire lives because it was such a prominent family. And certainly uh, Joe Sr. was uh, quite the uh, the string puller, quite the powerhouse. And moving up through history a little bit, uh, as you say, RFK stage managed John Kennedy's 1960 drive for the White House, end of quote. Bobby, as you say, served... As the hatchet man for his brother Jack's campaigns, uh, tell us about that, please. Sure. So what he did was um, he was a tough guy. When somebody in the campaign is always somebody who has to be able to say no as well as say yes. And whether it was going into a divided delegation in New York and telling them, I don't care what happens to any of you, I care that Jack Kennedy is elected president, it was Bobby who would go in and bang heads like that, and he did it with his brother's total understanding and authority, but Jack could come along later and look like the nice guy. Bobby Kennedy was the one who orchestrated the lies around whether or not Jack was sick. Jack was, in fact, very sick with an adrenal condition called Addison's disease, oh, right. and Bobby poo-pooed that and essentially lied to the press and to the country about it. It was Bobby who could go the night of the big presidential debate, um, when the first big televised presidential mm-hmm. debate between Richard Nixon and Jack Kennedy, when Nixon came up to Bobby just before he went on camera and said, how do I look? Bobby lied and said, you look great. <laughs> you all know that Nixon looked miserable. <laughs> and when Jack was about to go on the air, Bobby said, and I can't say it on the air, he said, kick him somewhere. Uh-huh. And that was the, this was Bobby Kennedy. He was a wry guy. He was a hard-working guy, he was a tough guy, and he was the guy who I think accounts for the fact that Jack Kennedy won that election by an incredibly slim margin yes, yes. with a very thin resume against the sitting vice president. Well, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, in, in politics, it's, there are people who like to be right, like to be pure. They don't end up in power. That is not the way to get your agenda into the legislative process into making it happen. It's better to win. It really is. And yes. and Bobby Kennedy knew about that. Your book talks about the time in 1960 when the Kennedy brothers helped get Martin Luther King out of jail as he faced a sentence, I think for a minor offense, a sentence in a chain gang. Martin Luther King faced a sentence in a chain gang. How did this affect what was then the closest presidential election in American history? So don't trust me on this one. Trust Dwight Eisenhower, who said the sitting president then said it was two phone calls that got Jack Kennedy elected president. And the phone calls he was talking about were, 
one that Jack made and everybody knew about from his hotel room. Jack calls Martin Luther King's wife, Coretta King, and says, I feel badly for you. And that was an above-board sort of token uh-huh. uh, gesture sure. that Richard Nixon didn't make, and that was a nice thing to do. Uh-huh. But the really important phone call, which we didn't know about until many, many years later, is the one that Bobby Kennedy made to the sentencing judge and said, Judge, let him out. We'll be nice to you. Let him out. And that was not only an, appro- an inappropriate call for anybody to make, yeah. but for a lawyer to make was especially wrong. And it was done behind the scenes, and it was done with Bobby intentionally obfuscating it. And the result was extraordinary. The result was that the Sunday before the election, in black churches across America, leaflets were distributed essentially saying, don't vote for that heartless Nixon guy, vote for the candidate with a heart, Jack Kennedy. And this was all in reference to that two phone calls. And it was extraordinary because as Teddy White, who Mm -hmm. wrote all those books called The Making of the President, as Teddy White pointed out, it was not some votes from a Chicago graveyard that got Jack Kennedy elected president as the myth had it afterwards. It was the margin of victory that black voters gave to Jack in key states. If Richard Nixon had just equaled Dwight Eisenhower's percentage of the black vote, he would have been in the White House. Uh, The Republicans had always been the party of Lincoln, and they were until the Kennedys turned that around. Wow. History is so fascinating. It's, It's amazing. Thank you for doing that work about that. And as, as you showed, Bobby Kennedy was, was not quick to jump on the civil rights bandwagon. How did he go from some degree of ambivalence about the subject to being the most trusted white man in black America? I believe there was some uh, significant incident for Bobby in his visit to a sharecropper shack in, in the Mississippi Delta. Did that come after the Martin Luther King thing or before it, the getting him out of jail? So that came well after, and that came the sharecropper shack was when Bobby was a senator from New York. Uh-huh. Turnaround that you were describing in terms of Bobby's civil rights record. Yeah. He started out very cautious on civil rights. What he was more interested in than promoting quickly civil rights is protecting his brother Jack. And going too fast, he felt, could embarrass him overseas, and it could embarrass him with the Southern conservative uh, segregationist mm-hmm. yeah. Democrats that had helped get him elected. So Bobby wanted to go slow, and yet what he did then and always on issues from civil rights to anti-poverty to the war in Vietnam is he learned from experience. He was open and kept his eyes open to what he was seeing and feeling around him. And what happened was the in civil rights, he had steered the country through the riots in Birmingham, in Montgomery, and most importantly, at Ole Miss in Jackson, Mississippi, when they were trying to integrate the buses and the colleges. And Bobby Kennedy had steered the federal reaction to that. He had tried to hold back on bringing in federal troops. And in the end, he understood that trying to appease arch-segregationists didn't work, that what you had to do was take them on. He learned that. And by the time it came to George Wallace having his famous stand in 1963 in the schoolhouse door at the University of Alabama, Bobby Kennedy outmaneuvered Wallace, and he was by that time clearly on the side of the Civil Rights Movement. So as with everything, 
starts out not on the wrong side, but not a real advocate on the right side, and he ends up, by the time he leaves attorney, the Attorney General's office, as one of the most trusted white politicians in America. Wow. Uh, amazing. And uh, it's just uh, the, the transformation of the Democratic Party. I mean, uh, Lyndon Johnson was a big part of that, certainly. Uh, FDR had a very hard time with the Southern Democratic senators. He, uh, he had to appease them. So making that change, of course, we know the result that these the, the old Southern segregationist Traditional Democrats, they're now Republicans. It's just the, the, the way it went. And what, what about uh, George Wallace? You mentioned him, and of course, uh, and he changed through the years, and, and Martin Luther King. What, what did they have to say or, or think about uh, Bobby Kennedy, the subject of your book? Yes, so George Wallace thought that he was a, an effete liberal. Bobby Kennedy represented to George Wallace everything that he ended up taking on when he ran when Wallace ran for president twice yeah. he was a harvard guy he was a um a johnny come lately liberal mm-hmm. he was all these bad things and he was the guy who stood up to george wallace and embarrassed him in alabama and so wallace had no use for him martin luther king had lots of reasons not to like Bobby Kennedy, that Bobby Kennedy was not an especial, uh, especially an ally of his mm-hmm. as Attorney General. He knew later that Bobby Kennedy had actually wiretapped his phones, and Wallace had all kinds of reasons not to like him, and yet, Wa- and, I'm sorry, that um, King had all kinds of reasons not to like him, and yet Martin Luther King was smart enough that he understood that somewhere deep in Bobby Kennedy was a guy who wanted to do the right thing, and he told his lieutenants throughout the years that let's give this guy a chance, he will come around, and he ended up being prescient. And it was ironic because when Bobby Kennedy showed just how far he had come around was in 1968, the night that Martin Luther King was assassinated, when Bobby Kennedy was campaigning for president in Indiana and lands his plane in Indianapolis and discovers that Martin Luther King has been killed. And the mayor of Indianapolis, a guy who went on to become a very powerful U.S. senator named Richard Luger, Bobby not to go to the rally he had planned on going to that night in the black ghetto in Indianapolis. Bobby Kennedy said, thanks for the advice, but I'm going. He goes into the middle of the ghetto. He gets up on a flatbed truck. And for the next six minutes, he gives a talk that is telling many people in the audience, a, an audience that was getting riled up, telling them for the first time that they were hearing this news that Martin Luther King had been killed. And yet he went on to describe how if anybody in America knew what it was like to lose somebody close to them to an assassin, it was him. He talked for the first time about his brother's death, and at the end of those six minutes, he had managed to not just win over the crowd, but to calm them down such that that night, while a hundred cities in America had race riots, one of the only big cities that didn't was Indianapolis, and that was due to Bobby Kennedy. Yeah, yeah very, very impressive. And I, I've seen that speech, and uh, it wasn't rehearsed. There were no uh, uh, you know, notes for him, uh, no teleprompter. He just did it. He spoke from the heart, and it, it was very moving. And if people can still watch that uh, speech through the magic of YouTube, 
powerful stuff. And, you know, being... Say one more thing about that speech. Yes, please. As you say, he not only... He went into the ghetto with notes that his staff had scribbled together. He threw those away, and he extemporized. Uh, But the... What was really impressive, as we look back at it with today's vantage point, is that is precisely the voice of reconciliation that Clinton and Trump and Obama are looking for. Clinton and Trump haven't been able to find it, I think. Obama gave a speech in Dallas, a 45-minute speech that came close. But he took 45 minutes, Hmm. and his was uh, scoped out in advance. Bobby Kennedy, in just six minutes, in something he ad-libbed, managed to instinctively find the right voice. And I think what we need today is somebody who gets what this is all about and who, who can go in without teleprompters, without staff aides writing the speech, no. and can bring people together just by the strength of their personality and the authenticity of their voice. Yeah, we are certainly not seeing that today. Obviously not with Trump, uh, who has a lot of support, let's face it, from the KKK. And, you know, Hillary Clinton is seen, I think, not incorrectly as kind of a uh, you know, a panderer. I, you know, she doesn't come across with th- what Bobby Kennedy had was just incredibly unique. Before we get to uh, his, you know, eventual assassination, there's a lot of a lot of history that happened to him. The Cuban Missile Crisis. He wrote, he was involved with dealing with that when his brother was president. He was Attorney General. Uh, he wrote a book called Thirteen Days. How much of Bobby Kennedy's memoir of the Cuban Missile Crisis was distorted? Tell us, please how those deceptions may have led America to get into trouble in places like Vietnam and Nicaragua. Yes, so the answer on how much of it was distorted was too much. Bobby Kennedy wrote that book. It was initially seen as a book that would come out and help Jack Kennedy win re-election in 1964. But Jack Kennedy was killed, and by the time the book actually came out, it was steered more towards Bobby's campaign in 1968. And it was a very political book. It was a book that we took at the time as being the definitive history, the insider's view of what really happened. But Bobby Kennedy portrayed himself as a dove throughout the crisis, when in fact he started as a hardliner. In those 13 days, he made the same transformation he would make over his 20-year career. He starts out saying the only way to deal with this crisis is to invade Cuba, to bomb them, Mm. to basically go in and and take a very tough approach. And it wasn't until later in the crisis that he came around to the blockade that his brother eventually supported. The other thing that he left out of the book was that it wasn't accidental that the Russians decided to put the missiles into Cuba. It was because they understood the underground secret war that Bobby Kennedy was waging for years against Castro. It was called Operation Mongoose. Mm-hmm. It was trying to do everything from sabotage the crops to kill the dictator Castro. And they had a reason, the Russians and the Cubans had a reason to think that America couldn't be trusted to leave the island alone, so they put in missiles. So A, he wasn't honest with us about his role with the crisis. B, he wasn't honest about how we got into that crisis. And it was, as you said, it set the wrong lesson for history. It, it gave LBJ a sense in Vietnam that the way to get what you wanted was to be tough and not to negotiate. And in fact, mm. we traded our missiles in Turkey. Yes. We removed our missiles in Turkey 
in response to the Russians removing their missiles from Cuba. But Bobby Kennedy had explicitly told the Russians this can't look like the tit-for-tat that it is. And one of the people who was kept in the dark on that was LBJ. So he thought yeah. he, he drew all the yeah. wrong lessons on toughness. Oh, no. And it was just, it was a very sad, uh, it was not just deception for the political uh, purpose of it, it ended up being a deception that really cost a lot of people potentially their lives. Oh my goodness, I didn't know that. And looking tough, and had LBJ known that the fact was that it was tit-for-tat, that we did kind of back down, that, that Khrushchev played an essential role in in uh, toning it down. Because looking tough in Vietnam, wow, how many lives and limbs were lost there? Uh, I'm a dog person too, not to <laughs> <laughs> Not a problem. We are talking with author Larry Tai about his brand new book, uh, quite an impressive book, Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. Now, talking about LBJ and Bobby, it's no secret uh, Lyndon Johnson and Bobby Kennedy were not close. Some have used the phrase mutual contempt. How did this state of affairs come to be? So Bobby Kennedy in his life had three great enemies. Number one was one we talked about, Roy Cohn. Yeah. Number two was the head of the biggest union in America, the Teamsters, Jimmy, Jimmy Hoffa. Hoffa. And number three was a guy who was somebody he never wanted to be his brother's vice president, who he disliked from the moment he met him when he was a young, <laughs> Bobby was a young Senate staff aide for Joe McCarthy. And LBJ, I think, just came from a different universe than Bobby Kennedy. One came up in East Texas, poor, and yeah. the not having had a brilliant education, he resented Bobby Kennedy for growing up with wealth, for growing up at Harvard, for growing up East Coast defeat. These two guys constitutionally didn't like one another, and Bobby Kennedy, after his brother was killed, always saw LBJ as a usurper, as somebody who didn't mm. really deserve to be president, who didn't deserve to have been vice president, and certainly didn't deserved to take the mantle that the great Jack Kennedy had had. And it was just, to me, it was a tragic relationship, because if the two of them, both of whom ended up coming around to becoming amazing advocates for civil rights, for ending poverty, yes. if the two of them had ever combined forces, hmm. they could have been one of the most dynamic duos in American political history. And instead, they go down with this mutual contempt being the thing we remember them for. Oh, what a shame. I mean, the, the power, the energy that was there that could have been used together because, as you say, they came to the same place. Oh, what a shame. History is so fascinating. And, of course, his brother John Jack Kennedy was assassinated. Did How did Bobby react to the Warren Commission? Did he accept the lone assassination explanation for that assassination? What was his point of view on that? So his official point of view was he always said, I accept the results of the Warren Commission. And there's no way, I think, that he really accepted the results of the Warren Commission. Well, and I think did. he had two responses. One was that he thought someday, if he were president, and he really could pull the levers of power, that he could do the kind of deep investigation mm. that Warren hadn't done and figure out what really had been behind the assassination. And the other, and this is just speculation on my part, but I think it's good speculation, I think that he felt a certain amount of fear and guilt. He didn't know whether the way he went after organized crime as attorney general had somehow upset organized criminals. 
He didn't know whether Jimmy Hoffa was angry enough at him and at Jack that he could have somehow been behind the assassination. And scariest of all, he didn't know whether Fidel Castro and Bobby's attempts to orchestrate Fidel Castro's downfall or even his death could have somehow set off a series of events that resulted in Jack being killed. So partly guilt, partly fear that the only way to really get to the bottom of it, if he ever would have done that, would have been to be president himself. Well, and there were enemies of Jack Kennedy, and there ended up being enemies of uh, Bobby Kennedy. Before we get to that obvious ending point, uh, I'll never forget that night. In, in 1968, I was a dedicated opponent of the war in Vietnam, and I supported Gene McCarthy for president. When Bobby Kennedy jumped in, I, I wasn't pleased, I got to tell you. He appeared to be an opportunist, opportunist who let Gene McCarthy do the hard organizing work while he used his famous name to leapfrog all that work on the ground done by others. What did your research tell you about the perception that I have had through the years? So my research told me that Bobby Kennedy was seen that year as the ultimate opportunist, that four days after Gene McCarthy wins the New Hampshire primary, and I should say with an asterisk wins because wow, he won, he really Republican win. write-in votes were added in. Ah. But just four days after that, the Bobby Kennedy jumps in. But the truth is that it was eight days before New Hampshire that Bobby Kennedy had actually made the decision that he was definitely going to run. Ah. And I think he wanted to give Gene McCarthy the fair and straight shot at LBJ because he had been campaigning so hard in New Hampshire. So while it made him look even more opportunistic, that it just it wasn't a fair rap on him. He was the one that all the anti-war activists, um, Allard Lowenstein yes. and others who were leading the anti-Vietnam movement, Bobby Kennedy was far and away their first choice to be the one to take on LBJ. And what Bobby worried about, it was partly his um, political calculation that maybe taking on a sitting president didn't make sense, but he also worried that it would be seen as a personal vendetta rather than a uh, dispute over the war, uh -huh. that he would be seen as somebody who was vindictive and couldn't accept LBJ as president. And I think that kind of back and forth that he was going through then, I'm more empathetic to than I was before I started the book, because I, like you, thought that he had jumped in in a way that just seemed so calculating. Yeah. And I think that he redeemed himself enough in the course of that campaign that all the anti-war activists that I knew who were behind McCarthy, from Sam Brown to a dozen others that I've talked to, all seemed ready in the end to acknowledge that the most well-rounded candidate, the candidate who had been there in the anti-poverty efforts, right. in the civil rights movement, in lots of places that Gene McCarthy never was, uh, was Bobby Kennedy, and that McCarthy was right on the war and not so right on lots of other things. This is true. This is true. I, it's one thing I found out, uh, unfortunately, later, that he, yeah, he was right on, on being against the war, but a lot of things he wasn't so what I would consider right on. And talking about being in different places on different issues, Hillary Clinton has been accused of taking many positions on a host of issues, depending on the audience. Some have seen her as kind of lacking a real soul. But Bobby Kennedy, you know, he... he he was accused of being an opportunist there, and you explained that remarkably uh, thoroughly. Uh, you know, he went from being a cold warrior to a, a liberal. Was it really a, a transformation, or was there really consistency with who, with who he was all along at heart? 
was he, in, in today's language, some might call him a flip-flopper? Or was, it, was there a real consistency that you discovered in writing this book, Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon? So I want to give you a contradictory answer. And the answer is that I think he definitely changed positions dramatically on lots of issues, and sometimes 180 degrees like on the war in Vietnam. But rather than doing it for political expedient reasons and being a flip-flopper, I think it gave me confidence that politicians could actually learn and grow by their experience, and Uh they could see where they were wrong. And he did it when he changed sides on Vietnam. He did it, and this is something we have to remember in terms of historical context, He did it before the country had really decided that the war was wrong. LBJ had just won in a landslide. Uh, He was still popular even by the 1968 election approached. And so Bobby Kennedy, rather than going with the political winds, at times changed position when it meant going against them. He was not especially popular in those days with race riots and other things to be as avidly pro-civil rights and pro-black radical in a lot of ways, in the way that Bobby Kennedy did. So, to me, we all want to, in America, believe in the process of redemption, the potential for redemption, and Hmm. his changes just seem so much less calculating than Hillary Clinton's. Uh, They seem so much more well-reasoned than trying to figure out where the heck Donald Trump is on anything. And the extraordinary thing to me is, by the end... He not only was assembling this unbelievable coalition of blacks and Hispanics and blue-collar whites, he was able to put together a coalition to combine the kinds of groups that Hillary Clinton is appealing to with the kinds of angry whites that Donald Trump is appealing to. And Bobby Kennedy had enough credibility with the Trump crowd from who he had been in his early years that there was at least the potential, I think, that he could have put together the coalition that we dream of, mm. and that he would have been the kind of tough liberal that people like me have been waiting for for 50 years. Oh, it, it hurts to consider that. It really does. As a you know, dedicated liberal myself, it's uh, what, the, what coulds, could have been. You, know, you know, in terms of, as you said, a lot of people might have wanted to have killed Jack Kennedy. I have to say it was exceedingly convenient for... Richard Nixon in 1968 to not have to run against Bobby Kennedy. There's a good chance Bobby would have beaten him, and I think beaten him very badly. But that coalition that you just described, Larry, <clears throat> Bobby also made enemies. And Go ahead. One more thing about why I think that Richard Nixon understood just how vulnerable he was. There was nobody in 1960 who was better at needling Nixon just where it hurt than Bobby Kennedy. No. And Jack Kennedy... Um, depended on Bobby for this stuff. Nixon said later that he learned his dirty tricks and his hardball politics from Bobby Kennedy. Uh, the last person in America that I think Nixon wanted to face in 1968 was Bobby Kennedy. And when you think how close Humphrey came to beating Nixon, yes. and Humphrey was carrying all the LBJ oh, baggage, yeah. Bobby Kennedy, there wouldn't have been the riots in Chicago, there would have been more party cohesion. And I think that... Um, I think it would have actually been a ticket that was a Kennedy-Humphrey ticket, and that would have been, in my mind, unbeatable. Oh. So, 
Does your book get into theories about who and why Bobby Kennedy was killed? I mean, again, Nixon was a, a nasty guy who, who's certainly known for his, uh, you know, lies and dirty tricks. Do you, was it just Sirhan Sirhan? Was, what, what do you think about that? I mean, an awful lot of people wanted Bobby out of the way. They did. So I think that it's exactly the kind of circumstances that 1963 and the Jack Kennedy assassination raised. There are lots of great questions that have been raised, no theories that I could see anywhere that have answered those well in terms of the conspiracy theories, and yet in both cases, um, I don't think we looked hard enough. So I don't pretend to have the answers. I think reopening the investigations is an interesting idea, especially the Bobby one, because there's been a whole lot less attention to reexamining that. And yet I also think there's an irony in terms of what happened to Bobby Kennedy in the end. And it was well known, and I think absolutely right, that Joe Kennedy was a pretty blatant anti-Semite, and that it was, that was a stigma that Jack and Bobby had to carry around for years. And it was a certain irony, and a, a tragic irony, in the fact that in the end, it was a Palestinian activist yeah, yeah. who left behind notes, Sirhan Sirhan, yeah. that he had killed Bobby Kennedy because of his support for Israel. And it's just the, uh, this guy, who, there are so many people who would like to have seen him gone oh, because yeah. of his potential to unite coalitions that were very threatening to a power structure. And as I had a professor in college who said, politics is the economy of violence. And that's what happened to him. Uh, it's that a, too. And uh, you point out that uh, Bobby has a strange and seemingly contradictory set of disciples. Eric Holder, John Ashbrook, Barack Obama, Karl Rove. What's up with that? How could such arch-liberals and arch-conservatives both adore the same man? So it was partly that they would point to different parts of exactly the history you and I have been talking about, that you could look at his Cold Warrior early conservative phase as a conservative and say, here's a guy who stood up and did what he was right, even though he came from a family where liberalism ended up becoming the creed. Um, Others could look at his later years and say he was a liberal. I think actually there's something even deeper that was going on, that both sides, what what Karl Rove and Eric Holder uh, both could respect in Bobby was an authenticity, that this guy, whatever phase he was in in his transformation, he seemed like somebody who was passionate about what he believed in, who was not worried about whether he was politically correct with the right or the left. And I think that they just, uh, the toughness combined with a sense of compassion was something that, that uh, I can tell you that when I interviewed the people I was interviewing who were liberals and conservatives, the one common thread with them is I've never in my 40 years as an author and journalist seen more people mid-interview tear up. Oh. And it was just because he, he died so young, but also because of the hope he represented, his loss just seemed even more painful than Jack Kennedy's loss. And I forget, how old was he when he was killed that night? 42, and mm. looks like he's about oh, 35. Geez. And even though he would have turned 90 this year, in my mind, and I think the mind of America, he'll always be Jack Kennedy's tussle-haired young brother. Yeah. I have a lot of uh, friends in Democratic politics who put Bobby Kennedy absolutely on a pedestal. There have been books, as you say, that are, are valentines to Bobby Kennedy. Uh, 
should should they dare to read this book, the people who put him on a pedestal? Um, so I think that the people that we ought to put on a pedestal, we, it's most compelling when we do, when they have this flesh-and-blood sense that we're not just looking at a rose-colored version of who they are. I started out with Bobby Kennedy as my hero. Yeah. I looked at all of his flaws, and I ended up with him as a more even, uh, a more compelling hero because he seemed like somebody with vulnerabilities who had a very checkered past and who ended up at the right place where you want somebody to be, having learned, having grown, having matured, and having admitted his past mistakes. And that, to me, is an even more compelling kind of hero to hold on to. And a politician who actually can see things and make changes and realize that he or she was wrong, uh, that's terribly admirable. We miss that terribly. People not wanting to admit mistakes and see themselves as fallible. But uh, what a powerful person he was. And, it, you know, his, his legacy continues. What what do you think the lessons of the campaign of 1968 might offer to politicians in 2016 and to the public? Why a half a century later should we still care about Bobby Kennedy? Partly because I think the coalition that he assembled then is one that we could still do today and that we could get beyond this divisiveness today. He offers a sense that there's a possibility to move beyond a one of the most acrimonious political situations that we've seen in my lifetime. And so having that hope that things could be better, I think that when you look at one particular area that intrigues me is how the press is being treated in this campaign. And Donald Trump treats them by bashing them, then banishing them from his campaign. Hillary Clinton ducks and parries. Robert Kennedy had a relationship with the press where he understood that he could learn from listening to them. They understood that they could learn from listening to him and fell in love with him. And in the end, I think the, the public is well served by having a dynamic of communication here. So in just issue after issue, he offers a sense that the things that we take as inevitable and that we've become cynical about aren't inevitable. And he shows that 50 years ago, he did it a very different way. Well, he sure did. Bobby Kennedy. The new book is called uh, Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. And he was a liberal icon. He's a lesson for uh, that many, many people can learn from what could have been. Oh, my goodness. What could have been? And uh, the little brother, the attorney general. And he beca- I'm trying to remember. He became attorney uh, uh, U.S. senator in the state of New York in 1964. Was that right? That is right. Yeah, after Teddy Kennedy became a senator from Massachusetts in 1962. I wonder, just a quick one, Bobby must have had to have stepped over a few people to get that in New York. He, I mean, he wasn't from New York. He did. He upset a few people. He okay. stepped over people. And yet the Democrats understood that the only way to beat the popular white-haired incumbent, Ken Keating, was to have a star. Bobby Kennedy was that star. And it helped him get out of his post-assassination depression ah. after he lost brother had that race and it helped new york elect a democrat and one of the most extraordinary senators i think he was um, one of the most effective senators certainly more effective than either ted or jack was in a similar period of time and he just he became a national senator working on really important issues so much to learn about a man we thought we knew bobby kennedy again the book is bobby kennedy the making of a liberal icon 
Very pleased to have you with us, author Larry Ty. I've loved your previous books, and uh, this is another great one. Thank you so much for being with us and uh, talking about this star, man. Thank you. Thank you, Bert. Bye-bye. Bye. Is this that?